Excellent, excellent. Great to be with you again. This is the second part of the final day on Money Matters, Mastering Money Matters. Am I close? Mastering Money. How are we doing? That's, that's good. Now, I really like your pastors uh, for many, many reasons. But one thing I loved a couple of weeks ago is that I got a text from Vicky telling me what to speak on. And I really like that. I'm not very good with just come and talk about money. I had specific questions that she wanted me to answer. And I felt like I was back at school. I felt like someone had given me an essay to write, and they give me the title, and I know how to plan a message around it. So it kind of felt, because I, I, I I, I'm quite jealous of my daughters who are going through school again at the moment, doing their GCSEs. I go, oh, this stuff's really interesting. Oh, I wish I was getting back into this sort of study. You can tell that I'm getting old when study becomes interesting again. But, um, you know, so, so this was great for me because it was kind of really got me thinking. And the title of this message is how to avoid or how to beat the desire to acquire. Isn't that a cool message? Um, now, I just hope I do the title justice, Vicky, and what I'm going to be sharing with you. Um, and just to say, do we have any Man United fans in the house this afternoon? Oh, that's brilliant. We're a United church. So we're all, we're all Liverpool fans. Is that right? Let's just say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray for this word. And for the boys. You see, Jesus, is, Jesus actually is a Liverpool fan because he promised yeah. you'd never walk alone. So, um, you know, Io, it's never too late, mate. You can come over to the light side and walk with us. Uh, so, <laughs> so this is going to be a very short message because kickoff is at 2.05. So I'm just going to put up the slides. You can bring your own conclusions to it. And then we'll finish, we'll finish very early. Uh, I think Barry's kids actually have a sweepstake on how long it's going to take me to finish the message. Um, so uh, anyway, we'll see how we go. Um, just, just, um, just as a bit of background, I was pastoring a church and met a guy called Jeff Letts. Jeff has an amazing testimony. He was actually born into a Jewish family, um, but his dad committed suicide at the age when Jeff was actually seven years old, um, five years old. And his dad, I think, had taken his life because he thought that if he, if he committed suicide, the debt that he had would disappear. Um, tragically, it didn't. It just got transferred. So now his wife, Jeff's mum, was now responsible for that debt, and she couldn't handle the pressure either. So the kids were removed from her, including Jeff, and they were all separated and sent into different um, foster homes. Um, his mum actually died a couple of years later, so at the age of seven, he was orphaned. Um, and then tragically, at the age of 12, he tried to take his own life, and they locked him away in a mental institution for adults at the age of 12. Can you imagine that? Yeah. And he hated it, obviously, and he ran away. And so he lived on the streets of Chicago. He would eat food out of dustbins to survive. Um, and he got in with a bunch of hippies who basically said, look, Jeff, we'll look after you, um, but there's one condition. You've got to get on your bike. You've got to deliver the drugs. So that's what he did. Um, at the age of 15, he had uh, an amazing conversion, became a Christian. Uh, he was then fostered, um, ironically, by one of the hippies who'd also become a Christian. And the local pastor kind of mentored him, fathered him. And he started working for a business at the age of 24 that helped him become a millionaire at the time of 31. And when he was sharing his story, what really struck me about Jeff was that he really doesn't love money. Um, he loves people, he loves purpose, but he doesn't love money. And yet he's gone from having none to having a, a plenty and abundance. If I lined up 100 people and you didn't know him and I said, pick him out, you'd never spot the millionaire. 
Um, that's the incredible thing about wealthy people. Most of them you'd never know. That's um, I'm not talking about the super rich. I'm just talking about people who have, you know, big, acquired large amounts of assets. And as we started talking and he shared his heart for people and his heart for the kingdom, his, pur- his kingdom purpose, I was really attracted to his business. And I actually, as a pastor, started working part-time in the company. He asked me if I'd sort of partner with him. And we started doing some work in the Northwest. And the business grew, the team grew. um, And we were really going out helping families in the area of finance. Education, because isn't it funny? We don't get any education about money when we're at school. Um, You learn how to chop up a rat, uh, do Pythagoras' theorem, all those things that you never use again. (laughs) But we don't actually learn how to manage money or the principles about money until it's too late. Um, so we started going out helping families in education and planning and the business grew and in the end my wife and I we made a decision to put to one side the pastoring and to start building the business and the ministry that's associated with that Um, and so what really inspires me about Jeff is this this incredible heart for the kingdom purpose and the money is just a vehicle in which he can do that Um, But the reason I flag all of that up is that he did a podcast recently where he was interviewed by the senior pastor of Hillsong, well, Hillsong UK, I think it is now, Kathy Clark. Um, I forward it on to Barry, and so he can put the word out. I mean, I don't know whether you've got a church Facebook or something like that. Um, Maybe you can put it out. Kathy Clark does conversations with Kathy, and they have discussions. And he did a podcast on a conversation, which was really how to get strong financially in 2019. Great, great resource, and I'd really encourage you to have a listen to that. Um, but he really is a, a, an inspiration when it comes to this topic of beating the desire to acquire. And I want to just start with um, a passage from the Bible that's in Ecclesiastes, um, which is a really interesting book in the Bible because it's written by one of the wealthiest men of his day, yeah. <laughs> King Solomon. So this guy was not short of cash, right? He was loaded. I mean, he was absolutely minted. In, in, you know, in terms of, I mean, gold, we understand that, silver, but then in terms of his armies and his flocks and everything else, God had blessed him with an incredible abundance. But this is really interesting. In Ecclesiastes 5, he says this, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? So it's really interesting that the Old Testament is very clear. Now, notice he didn't say wealth is bad. He just said those that love wealth, um, those that love riches, they never have enough. But you've got to understand that a poor person can love money. Yes, that's right. So for a poor person, if they love money, they've never got enough. It doesn't matter whether they become a millionaire. They still don't have enough because they love money. That's right. Come on. A millionaire who's got an abundance of cash cannot love it and be very content and very happy and therefore be very good with their money. Yeah. Jeff always says... Um, that it's not money that makes a person bad. A bad person is a bad person. If you put money in the hand, they're just able to do more bad. <laughs> just have to think about that one for a minute. If you put money in a good person's hand, then they're able to do more good. Money itself is actually neutral, but it's the love of money that actually leads you into 
dangerous places and difficulties. And Jesus said the same. Um, in fact, in Acts 20, verse 35, this is um, the book of Acts, it says, Remember the words of Jesus. Um, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Jesus' whole take on this was, look, actually giving money is much more fun than acquiring money. So the whole Bible is really clear. Money is a good thing because it enables you to do good things as long as your heart doesn't get attached to it and start to love it. Because when it loves it, then you start to get twisted on the inside and now you start to do bad with it. So the love of money is the root of all evil, but acquiring wealth is not a bad thing. Does that, does that make it clear that there's a distinction between the two? And it's really important that you have that distinction in your mind because otherwise you can take a wealthy person and judge them and go, oh, well, you're just evil. Or you can judge them and think, you must really love money, you're really greedy. But that isn't true at all. Um, and so just because you're poor does not mean you're spiritual. In fact, you can be very unspiritual as a poor person. And so it's really important that we hold that clear when we talk about this subject of the desire to acquire. I, I was thinking very hard about this topic because it would be easy just to start to talk on a message on the love of money and the root of all evil and all of that kind of stuff. But I, I want to take a step back for a moment. Have you ever been to an art gallery and seen um, a painting by someone like Monet? Yeah. You know the Impressionist paintings? Up close, they don't look like very much at all. In fact, it's just like loads of little brush strokes. It's only when you take a step back, you see the whole picture and you go, wow, that is incredible. And there's a danger with um, the desire to acquire that we get so close up to it that we actually miss the point and we need to take a step back. And the step back is this. You've got to ask yourself, what is the, what is the objective of your life? What are you on the planet for? Why are you here? Because everything else, whether it's money or relationships um, or what you're doing with your time, all stems from the answer to that question. But the answer to that question, in very general terms, is the same for all of us. You see, if you're a Christian, the, the whole point of your life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that it's the fact that he lives in you and is wanting to express himself through your life that is the objective of your every breathing minute on this planet Earth. Yeah. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ in you, the same power that rose Christ from the dead now lives in you. His spirit is in you to reflect his power and his purposes through your life. That's the objective of why we're on planet Earth. I love what Paul says. He says, in Philippians 3, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. You see, if your objective is to reveal the power of Christ living in you, it's to reflect the fact that Jesus actually... I mean, it is an incredible thought, isn't it? Paul has to almost emphasise it in 1 Corinthians. He says, you've got to understand Christ Jesus lives in you. Christ, the, the living Christ, the saviour of planet Earth, lives in you. In you. He, he inhabits you like you live in a house. He lives in you. Now out of that, let everything else flow. And Paul says, right, well, if Christ is living in me, there is a purpose to my life. And I want to take hold of that purpose because Christ has already taken hold of me. And when Paul wrote that, he wasn't like, yeah, we just hold our hands like we're going out. It was like he's got me in like an arm lock, like I can't, I can't escape. 
So you see, Christ has a hold of you in such a way you can't escape. You may go to the ends of the earth, but he's still there with you in an arm lock. You may go to the depths of the sea, but he's still with you in an arm lock. You can go to the highest places, climb Mount Everest if you like. He's still there with you in an arm lock. So Paul says, right, now I'm going to lay hold of him and the purposes he has for my life in the same way that he's already kind of wrestled me to the ground. So that is the bigger picture when we talk about the, the desire to acquire and everything else. You've got to understand where we're coming from in this. It's Christ in you to fulfill his purposes through you. And in that context, we can talk a little bit more about money. So Jesus said, didn't he, in Matthew, he said, Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and everything else you need will be added to your life. When I first got saved, I, I was quite anxious in life in general. I would worry quite a lot about silly little things that would just rob me of any sense of peace. And I don't know if anyone else has shared that at times. And it was irrational and it didn't make sense, but I was a worrier. Um, that's why I still buy my nails, because it was a habit that I still, <laughs> I still nibble away at. But that's where it came from. And I remember reading that in about the first six months of me getting saved and it just brought an instant peace in a way that I couldn't even explain. Because it was suddenly like, I get it now, everything else, everything else is going to be added to my life as I focus on one thing. If I can seek first God's kingdom purposes for my life and rest in his righteousness for me, then I know that everything else will be cool. And if you can start your day there and end your day there, if you can start from a place of rest, you can then enter a place of success. And so that is, what, that is the big picture before we get into the finer detail of resisting the desire to acquire, because now money fits into that purpose. So you're not really accumulating anymore just for the sake of accumulating if you're accumulating wealth, there's a purpose attached to it because it's part of this bigger picture that Christ wants to live through you for those purposes. So let's just bring it down to money. What does that mean for our money? Well, the Bible's really clear. It's basically be generous. Because if you can be a generous person, you have actually now started to express the heart of Christ that is living in you. And generosity is such an important attribute to someone who loves Jesus because he laid down our lives for us and gave the utmost sacrifice, was the most incredible, generous act of giving to us. And, and the Bible actually exhorts us to be the same way. That there should be an overflow of generosity in our lives that leads to people going, wow, what is it about you that makes you so... Uh, it's just Christ living, Christ living in me. So listen to this passage from Proverbs. This is Proverbs 11, verse 24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds, that he should, um, sorry, another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. It's a really interesting passage, isn't it? One gives freely and ironically gets richer. And then a different person withholds what they ought to be giving and ends up just needing or wanting more. That doesn't make sense. It would make sense if I give more, I should have less and therefore want more. But the Bible actually says, no, as you give out more, you're actually going to become richer. You will be enriched. 
not necessarily that there's just a sort of um, a downbeat of money, but just more, I'm enriched in my heart because I'm giving away all the time. (coughs) But even financially, the promise is that as you give, God is able to give back to you, pressed down, shaken together and running over. In other words, you use a measure in your generosity where God gazumps that, multiplies it and gives it back to you. So whenever you give, you should expect there to be a gift coming back to you further down the line. Yeah. Have you ever seen, I can't remember what movie it is, but they say you, instead of paying it backwards, you pay it forwards. Yeah. So you give something and then somehow at some point that gift of generosity is going to come back to you abundantly overflowing towards you. And it's a principle that is all through the Bible that as you give, more is given back. As you give, more is given back. So the, to beat the desire to acquire is to actually let money go through you. Because when you can let money go through you, God can get money to you. Yeah. You are born to be a river with your resources, not a lake or a dead sea with your dough. <laughs> so clever. <laughs> but do you see what I mean? If, if, you're like, if you're like a river, then you're constantly being replenished and finance and resources getting through you and more keeps coming. But if you're like a, a dead sea or just a lake and it's just, I just want to, I want to look after this. Well, you end up with no outflow. So you end up with no inflow. Yeah. It's like the dam or there's a dam over the river. It's blocked. You're a blockage. And so you end up running out of what's coming in. Yeah. It's odd, doesn't it? It doesn't make sense in some ways that that's the principle at work. But the more you let go through you, the more's actually going to come to you. And it's one of the life lessons that if you can nail it early and make it a habit, it stays with you for life. And you will bear testimony to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. I remember I, was, I just got saved and I went to a, you know, one of these summer camps. And I think I've shared, I can't remember that I've shared this with you before. And I'd, I'd been working in boots <laughs> and uh, not on the pharmacy department. They wouldn't trust me there. I was on the sound and vision department of boots. Um, in the days when they had a sound and vision department, because I don't think it exists anymore. And um, it was, I'm so old that we used to have the little vinyl singles in a chart on the sort of like the server. And every week I had to put out the singles in order of what they were in the chart. So Adam and the Ants, number one. Uh, Depeche Mode, number 40. <laughs> Sophie's like, who is this guy? It's just a uh, little mix weren't born and (laughs) so I had that job to do a very important job Um, and then we had cassette tapes in the back and they were all they were all catalogued and it was really annoying if someone didn't catalog them right and then and then I had photographs so cameras we was on cameras I didn't have a clue about cameras but because I had the boots badge on everyone thought I knew what I was talking about so if you came in asked me about camera I say no that's a good one they go oh great okay we'll take that one um, and then I was also on films, developing your films, and I had to do that role. And that I didn't like, because if people didn't load their film right, because this was in the day before digital, and you had a little film, if you didn't load it right in your camera, you could go on holiday, take 24 pictures, and then have nothing. Yeah. And when that happened, they'd always take it out on the person serving them. <laughs> so there was one guy, he brought, in, he brought in six rolls of film. They had 36 on them, and he'd been on safari. And we processed them and they were all blank. 
I don't know what had happened, but he hadn't put them in, and he lit me up. He just went for me, and uh, I nearly, I nearly finished working in boots that day. But uh, anyway, I'd saved my money, and then I'd gone to this sort of Bible camp, and I remember them talking about generosity and giving, and I felt God say, "You need to give your summer money away." Like really? <laughs> now, got to understand, it wasn't a lot of money. It was about five hundred quid. But to me, it was everything. And here's another thing. I, I felt that if I gave that away, my dad would think I was very irresponsible. So there was, this was a bigger issue than just money. This was who is the source of my money and the one who I'm going to honor first. But in doing that, giving that money away, I have, I have always been able to give more at every opportunity to give money at an offering ever since that day. And I'm still alive and eating and breathing. So I've not lacked for anything, but actually what started then was a habit of being able to keep giving and keep giving and keep giving. And at times, it's not easy, is it? Because the desire to hold on to what, you know, you, isn't there a moment where you go, oh, I just wish the game could end right now. This would be perfect. I've got a bit of savings. I've managed to reduce my debt. We're doing all right. Let's just end the game now, Lord. This is perfect. But life isn't like that. Life is a journey. You're on a, you're on a journey constantly. And so it's about allowing this river to flow through you, this resource. And you will find in time that it keeps being replenished, keeps growing, keeps increasing. And actually the amount you're giving actually goes up. Because of this promise in Proverbs that says the one who gives freely grows richer, while another who withholds actually lives in want, lives in want. So one of the reasons I think why we hold on to our money is because we don't understand how money works. And why would we? No one taught us at school. No one showed us the principles. So we actually, we kind of, we worry about the crumbs instead of focusing on the loaf. We worry too much about the small amounts instead of looking at the bigger picture. And so what I want to try and do is now get into a bit of the detail on the power of money to ultimately take you to a completely different place to the one that you're in at the moment. Because I think if you can understand this, you will avoid that desire to acquire. Yes, very good. So, Tracy, we need the slides for this. If you can put the first one up. <clears throat> when we start earning money, okay, we leave school and we start going into, or we've even started working for money while we're at school, we have no problem spending money. Did you find that? Did you need to go to a course on how to spend money? Did you take extra night classes? Did you do? No one taught you, did they? they you, just, you knew that you wanted to spend money. That's why you'd gone and earned it in the first place. So we start off by income leading to expenditure. Is that right? Am I going the right way? Income leading to expenditure. Now, when you stay there, all you're doing is acquiring stuff. And some people never change, never leave this part of the, the sort of framework. You just get some money and then you go and buy stuff. It's not stuff you need, it's just you like buying stuff. And what happens over time is that you actually accumulate so much stuff, you need more space to put the stuff in. So you kind of go into the attic, you start putting your stuff up there. So now you're acquiring new stuff and putting the old stuff in the attic. And then the attic fills up, so now you have to build like a sliding wardrobe somewhere that you can fit more stuff in. So now you're putting it from into the house, up into the attic, then, it, oh, we better bring it back down to the side. Now, well, we'll use that bit, we might use that again soon. And you fill your house with stuff. But stuff never satisfies. Stuff never actually does it for you. But the problem is, it, it's kind of, 
it's like an impoverished way of thinking about money. If all you ever think about is, if I get money, I can go and get stuff. If I get money, I can go and get stuff. It's not really understanding that money is a resource. It's like a seed. And all you're doing is just using it to spend on stuff that doesn't actually satisfy. So people that just buy stuff have a cluttered life and they have an impoverished life. Now, this is what typically happens in the UK. It's not everywhere, but it's typical in the UK. If we have the next slide, Tracy, we start to earn a bit more money and we get a bit giddy. And we think, oh, I could improve my life now. So I'm going to buy a bigger house (coughs) and I'm going to get a really nice car. And then I'm going to start just, I don't know, getting some other things. I might get a nicer phone. Um, I might start getting Sky TV. And you start to acquire liabilities. Now, so you're splitting your money now 50%. You're still buying stuff, but half of it's also going on liabilities. You know that a car is a liability, right? A liability is anything you buy that costs you money. So it's draining money out of you, which is why there's another arrow there that goes back down to expenditure. So if you get a bigger car, you've got bigger insurance. It's got bigger tires, so the tires cost more. The servicing costs more. Putting your children on the insurance costs even more. So suddenly your expenditure has got to go up because you've acquired a liability. You buy a bigger house, you might have to buy a lawnmower. You might have to pay more for upkeep of the house. When I mean, you've got to renew the gutters, it's not like one gutter has now only got seven gutters you've got to replace. So suddenly the house costs you more money just to maintain. Now, these people are the most stressed out people in the UK. They look really successful. See, here's a really interesting thought. We assume that someone who drives a car with a 2019 registration plate is really wealthy. That's the wrong assumption. They might just be a big cash flow. Money has come in and money has gone out on a PCP. They don't own the car. It's nothing to do with them. It's just renting a car. So never be fooled by someone who drives a flash car that they're wealthy. That ain't the case. In fact, I'd love it if no one could ever judge how wealthy I am by what I drive. Because the external things don't count for anything. And if you understand that a bigger car is a bigger expenditure because it's a liability, you might think twice about getting a bigger car. Now, the problem with this is that you now are f- you're funding a lifestyle that sometimes your income may go down. It's not always constant. And then you have to borrow money to keep it going. Because it's all based on what you're bringing in at the start. It's based on the income. Yeah. Now, you know and I know that the banks are always willing to offer you money to borrow. Just, at, just as a straw poll out of the people in the room, how many of you had a letter from the bank in the last six months telling you that your credit limit has gone up or they're offering you a new credit card? How many of you don't like lifting your hand up? <laughs> okay, so we've covered everybody in the room. <laughs> okay, That's amazing, isn't it? So we've all been offered more money. Yeah. It's not ours, someone else's, but we've been offered more money. Now, here's where the danger to acquire really kicks in because now if you're borrowing money... You're enslaved to someone else. You're serving someone else now because you you've got to pay that money back. So this cycle looks great. In fact, it looks like you're really succeeding, but it's incredibly stressful because you've got to maintain the cycle. And when the income breaks down, you've got to borrow more money. And it can actually lead to a really, really dangerous place. So this is where the majority of people in the UK live. 
It's, it's kind of the cycle that they're on. But funnily enough, it's not where wealthy people live at all. Now, here's a funny thought about wealthy people. We think either they're really lucky, they're very greedy, <laughs> or, um, or they were just in the right place at the right time. I would, I would like to suggest that for most wealthy people, they weren't looking for money in the first place. That they were actually trying to find a solution to someone else's problem and fixing it. And the more people's problems they could solve, the more money they ended up making. So have you all heard of Henry Ford, creator of the Ford Motor Car Company? Okay, that's even older than me. So think about what he actually wanted to do. He wanted to create a car that most people could afford. That was the problem he was trying to solve. Because before Ford, cars were really expensive and only the privilege of the really wealthy. And he thought, wouldn't it be cool if everybody could buy a car? So he invented a way of making a car where if they broke down the, the, the procedure, so Bob did tires, Jenny did the exhaust, and Bill did the windows, and that's all they did, it would actually make the production of the car so cheap that the price didn't have to be that expensive and everybody could afford to get one. So everybody started driving around in cars and Mr. Ford became very wealthy. But he wasn't trying to do it to make money. He was trying to mobilize the population in the United States because it's a big place. Yeah. Steve Jobs. Do you think Steve Jobs just sat down and thought, I just want money? I don't think that guy thought that. I thought if I can find a way of reinventing the mobile phone and making this a powerful app in someone's hand, then we're going to actually be able to connect better. We're going to be able to do business faster. We're going to be able to just empower people's lives. But as a result of that, the company and Steve Jobs acquired a lot of money. Bill Gates did not think, I'm just going to be the wealthiest man on this earth. He thought, if I can invent a computer that everybody can have in their homes and put simple applications on it that mean even I can do a spreadsheet and send an email, then I'm, you know, that's, a, that's fixing a problem. And as a result, acquired wealth. So wealthy people tend to have a different mindset that is not anything to do with making money. It's actually about solving people's problems and trying to do it on a big scale. The reward is wealth, but because they've learned to solve other people's problems, they tend to use the wealth with great wisdom. Not always. The children of wealthy oil barons in the Middle East don't tend to use the money very wisely. But then maybe they didn't learn the lesson of how to acquire the wealth in the first place. But that, that actual experience of acquiring wealth through solving people's problems changes you on the inside. And wealthy people think differently about what they do with their money. So Tracy, if we could have the final slide. You see, when a wealthy person starts to earn more money, they don't buy stuff. And they don't buy, first of all, the nicer car. In fact, what they do is they now buy an asset. And an asset is anything that ultimately makes you more money. Does that make sense? So an asset could be as simple, I think I've used this example before, a candy floss making machine. I don't know how much they cost, 200 quid. So you make a bit more money at work, you go, I'm going to buy a candy floss making machine. And on a Saturday in the summer, I'm going to go to all the local fairs and I'm going to sell candy floss. And I'm going to charge a pound a bag, and by the end of it all, I'll have acquired more than 200 pounds, I'll have acquired 500 pounds. Yeah. 
but now you use that money to go and buy a second candy floss machine. You pay your best friend to go and run it. Now you've got one candy floss machine at the first entrance to the show and another candy floss machine at the other entrance to the show and you're making more money. But that's an asset because it makes more money. So a house, a property is an asset if it's not the one you're living in, if you're renting it out. Because now you put a tenant in there and they pay you money for renting it and now you're able to pay the mortgage and make a bit of extra. And then with that extra, instead of spending it on holidays and everything else, you put it into a savings account and you build up enough money to buy another deposit so you can now buy another house and put someone else in that one. So wealthy people just have a different mindset <coughs> that is not about acquiring money for the sake of buying stuff. Because that's the love of money, because I just want to do something for me with it. They're acquiring wealth. Now, if you attach purpose to that, if you attach purpose, so this wealth now has a kingdom purpose. Because this money now is making money and the money then makes more money and more money and it's a, it's a virtuous cycle that goes up and up and up. But now you've attached a purpose to it because this is for the church, this is for an, uh, um, a charity, this is for an organisation that I'm passionate about. Now the acquiring of wealth is like you're creating this giant pipeline of money. And that money now can get through you and it can get to these incredible causes. So there's only three assets just to keep it simple. One is a business. One is property. And the final one is investments. And really, that's it. I know it seems incredibly complicated out there, but there's only three real places you can put your money. Now, we haven't really got time to go into all of that in terms of trying to make that complexity more simple, but it is thinking differently about the way that you use money. Now, I am going to just talk very briefly about investments because the way investments work, most people can invest money. Did you know that the government actually gives each individual in the UK £20,000 a year that they can invest in different investment funds that is tax-free? Did you know that? Yeah. So you've heard of cash ISAs. That's where you take your money to the bank and they say, you put your money with us, we'll get 1%, 1.5% on it, and when you take your money out, it's cash-free. Well, there's also investments that are ISAs as well, called stocks and share ISAs, and they're tax-free too. Just think about that. The government enables you to put £20,000 a year per person. So if you're a married couple, that's £40,000 you could be putting a year in a fund like that. Why is the government doing that? Because they want you to invest money. They want you to start taking responsibility and thinking like someone who's acquiring wealth instead of acquiring stuff. Because yeah. there's a huge difference. Yeah. Now, here's what's really cool about those investments. You don't have to worry about them. You don't have to monitor the stocks and share prices and try and buy when it's low and sell when it's high. It just kind of does it for you as long as you put a steady amount in month by month. But here's the really cool thing about them investments grow faster and faster and faster over time. So most of the growth in your investments will happen at the very end, not at the beginning. Yes, right. And it's really important that we understand that because that is the key to being smart with our money. If you wanted to help a baby when they're born become a millionaire by the time they're 67, and you put your money for them into an investment at 8% return, how much money a month do you think that you'd need to put into that investment? So you're going to start it, they're going to carry it on. 
You start it, they get to 18, they carry it on. And month by month, they just keep putting this money away. You're getting an 8% return on average. What do you think you need to get a million pounds by the time they're 67? How many of you think it's 500 pounds or more? <laughs> okay, I don't know whether you go higher or lower. <laughs> uh, uh, how many think it's 1,000 pounds or more? Okay, so we've got to go lower. Okay, how many think it's 200 pounds or 200 to 500 pounds? One taker, two takers, any advance, three takers. Oh, this is good. Okay, let me tell you the figure and put you out of your misery. It's 35 pounds a month. 35 pounds a month. Who could afford 35 pounds a month? Every, everyone should have their hands up because every one of us can afford 35 pounds a month. Just cut out your Sky TV. Yes. Cut out your gym membership and buy a pair of running trainers. Yeah. Buy Joe Wicks. <laughs> Five quid for Joe Wicks for life. He's going to sort my body out. And I don't have to pay gym membership fees ever again. But can you see the mindset? It's not impoverished thinking to buy Joe Wicks. It's just that I want my money to work harder than that. So rather than putting it all on a gym membership, I'm going to put it in something else and just watch Joe. Do you see the difference in the way we think? Now, here's the problem. No one's ever taught us that £35 a month can do anything. So we go and spend it all on Costas and Starbucks and gym membership and all these other things. We acquire the stuff while someone else takes our money and goes and invests it and acquires wealth. Yeah. So one of the keys to fighting the desire to, acquire, desire to acquire is understanding actually how powerful your money is. Yeah. And that understanding that it's actually seed to be sown, not food all to be consumed and eaten. Because that passage in Ecclesiastes says, the more you consume, the more you'll want. The more you keep buying stuff, the more stuff you'll need, because you never have enough. It's all ultimately meaningless. But if you understand that your money is seed to be sown, and if you attach a purpose to that, so you think, this is fantastic. Because if I can accumulate wealth, now I can actually do more with it. How many of you would like to help the poor? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think we'll take that as everybody. Okay. A poor person cannot help poor people because they've got nothing to give them. A wealthy person has a lot to be able to help the poor with because they have more money to give. Who's helping people more at the moment with their money? Me or Bill Gates? Bill Gates, absolutely. He's trying to give all his money away by the time he dies. That's a lot of money. That's billions of pounds, dollars. So actually, the more wealth you accumulate, the more impact you can have. Let's go back to the beginning. What is your objective? Christ living in you, the hope of glory, expressing that out into the world. And your, your cause is to have an impact and be significant in your world. So if you've learned that instead of just spending your money on stuff from the pound shop all the time and just filling your house with stuff that you use for six months and then never use again, you could start actually using it as seed and investing it and it accumulating and then giving you the ability to use the overflow of that for other causes. Now that's real power and influence. But it comes from a heart that says, Jesus, you've been so generous to me. I want to be generous to other people. Let me think of ways now of being creative and entrepreneurial and investing this money so that I can then use it for other things. And Jesus told a parable just like it, didn't he? The parable of the talents. He, get, he says there's this rich guy and he gives ten talents to one, uh, five talents to one and two talents to another and one talent to another. And then he says, now go and make some money with it. And when he comes back, he rewards the one who's made 10. He rewards the one who's made eight. And the guy that still has one, he says, what on earth were you doing? 
He says, oh, I feared you. I didn't want to lose it. I didn't want to do this. And he's, he's just impoverished thinking again instead of thinking I can actually do something with this resource and make it grow and make it get larger. And the lie is that small amounts don't lead to anything, but small amounts lead to big amounts if you do something with it for long enough. So it's starting to build a bigger picture with your life that thinks actually these things have real power if I can just apply some financial principles, some financial wisdom that's in the Bible. Does that make sense? Is this okay? So beating the desire to acquire is not quite as simple as just don't love money. It's actually understanding that your money is a seed that is going to enable you to unlock more wealth and resource as you start to use it smartly and wisely and have a kingdom heart that says, I, I want to I fund stuff. I want to put my money into things that's going to enlarge and increase the kingdom and Christ's purpose here on earth. And it comes from actually understanding that even small amounts, if you divert it and put it somewhere else, can start to build bigger and bigger resources for you. It comes back to budgeting and planning and thinking, right, how much of our income can we actually allocate to investing and putting away and actually giving away? Starting to be creative in the way that we think. Let's just bring this into land. I also want us to think one final thought about the power to set this in motion is bigger than just you. And as we just conclude, have this thought that understanding finance is a generational principle. Do you know, when I've, I've been to some families' homes who are Jewish to do financial education and planning. Do you know what's really amazing is that they get all their children around the table. And I'm like, okay, uh, so we've got age range from 8 to 40, and this is a present. He said, just do it like you'd always do it. I said, okay, I'll just do it like I always do it. He'd say, let me just stop you there one second. This is the dad. He'd say, kids, did you understand that? Yeah. He'd say, would you mind just going through that again? I don't think little Johnny over there, he understood that properly. Okay, we'll go through it again. So we go through it again. He'd say, Johnny, did you get that? Yes, dad, I think I got that. Great, let's move on. So then I'd start going on again on the same financial presentation I'd show any of you. Stop me again. He'd say, Jill, did you get that? No, I didn't get that, dad. Okay, let's go over that one again. And suddenly what I thought, this is incredible. This family, they want to understand principles that the dad and the mum are trying to implement, but also teach their kids early. I see you, this is bigger than just you or the church or just the here and now, because what you are able to implement and pass on is going to grow even bigger in the next generation. You see, imagine, you may, you may be sitting there thinking, look, I wish I'd heard this when I was 23 and had my first child and I could have implemented this much younger and everything else. It, listen, the best time to start is today. And even if you don't accumulate a million pounds, it doesn't matter because what you begin today in taking small amounts and investing, small amounts and investing and starting to acquire assets instead of stuff means that as you teach that to your children and your children may be 20 by now, but you say, listen, this is what I've heard. This is what we've got to implement. And it gets passed on from generation to generation. Each generation is going to build on the wealth of the last and get wealthier and accumulate more so they can do more things with it. But if you stay in the cycle where you're just accumulating stuff and accumulating liabilities, you never teach your kids anything. And I'm talking about the older kids too. You never show them a different way. You never show them a different example. And it gets repeated generation after generation. 
And we don't have to live like that. Imagine if we as a church across the UK could become debt free in, in this generation. And we teach our kids how to do things differently. And we then say to them, listen, don't go into debt. Let's start to use this money so that we can actually build assets for the future. And the next generation, they build on that and they start to acquire wealth and they start to use it to fund the kingdom. And then the next generation come along and say, wow, look what you were able to do. We're going to apply the same principles. And suddenly in three generations, you've broken it completely. And now you've got the wisdom of heaven's way of dealing with wealth being implemented through the church. We think our lives don't matter. We think that small things are really insignificant, but they're so not. Because what you implement today, it, it starts with a ripple, but it becomes a tsunami because other people's lives are affected by the decisions that we make. And the lie that we believe is that one decision today has no impact on anybody ever. So we make the wrong choice or the poor choice or the second choice instead of the best choice. And my challenge to you today is wherever stage of life you're in, think about the legacy you're leaving for the generation that's coming behind you. What can you do today that starts to change the way that your family over generations has done things so you can start to build on what they've already done for you? Because that's the different mindset, the different way of thinking. And it breaks the desire to acquire. And it says, I've got a purpose for my life. It's a kingdom purpose and it's Christ that lives in me. Come on, why don't we stand? Heavenly Father, we're going to pray. Just lift your hands to heaven. Lord Jesus, we are amazed that you live in us. Father, we want to thank you that for each one of us, your son has taken up residence in our lives. That it is true that Christ lives in each one of us. I pray, Lord, that today that would be a revelation that rings in our hearts. Lord Jesus, that Christ lives in me. And Lord Jesus, we want to do honour to that privilege, that we want that to be expressed in our lives, in every aspect of it, Lord. We're talking about money today, but may it, be, may it reflect in the way we speak to other people. May it be reflected in the way that we are at work. May it be reflected in the way that we are with our kids. May it be reflected in every aspect of our lives, but in the specifics of money. Let it be reflected in hearts that overflow with rich generosity. Let it be reflected in hearts that are creative about what we do with the resource you've given us. Help us to be entrepreneurial, to be investors, to be people that are sowing instead of consuming, that are building for the future instead of just living for today, that are trying to change things for generations to come rather than just thinking about ourselves. Help us, Lord Jesus, to think bigger about money, to think greater thoughts about your resource. Lord, Lord the more we can get through us, the more you can get to us. Lord, may that be the story of our lives, that we're able to help and bless and fund more and more causes for the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.